All right, all right. Good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody feeling this morning? Wow. Let's try that again. Good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody doing this morning? There it is. There it is. It's so good to see you. It's good to be back. Had a chance to speak last week at Abundant Life, the church that sent us up here several years ago to launched Discover Church, and uh, grateful to be able to be home. Jessica and I spent, um, man, almost 15 years of our life there at Abundant Life, so it was good to be there. Um, But man, can I tell you, there is no group of people I love being with than you, more than you. That's what I meant to say. And so it's good to see you. I'm glad to be back. Um, Thankful to Corey last week. Man, he brought such an incredible word last week as he would uh, continue. Yeah, you can clap for that. I mean, I know he's not here, but... You know, I will pass word. I'll pass word. Eight people awkwardly clap for you, Corey. <clears throat> um, but man, it's, uh, it's so good. Uh, Corey continued in our series, Who's the Minister Here? Here's what we've been learning. Uh, if, uh, if, if you're new with us, uh, we've been learning that Jesus, um, the, the life that Jesus wants for us doesn't just begin, doesn't just end at salvation, it really begins the moment that we trust in him. And that we learned in week one that we've been promoted, that we've been invited into this opportunity to be a minister. And then we learned in week two that the Holy Spirit anoints every single one of us. That's a weird word and it freaks a lot of people out, but we unpacked it and learned what it means to be anointed by the Spirit of God to be a minister, that he empowers us to go do the work that he's called us to do. And then last week, what you learned is that you have been appointed that there is a a place, a space, and a people that you have been appointed to minister to. And here's one of the things that I love most about what Corey was talking about is he was talking about um, the discovery Bible groups and and those kinds of things. Man, I don't don't know if you know this or not, but everything that he was talking about is what we're trying to do here at our church through small groups. That we're trying to create opportunities where you can minister to people that are close to you but far from God and give you opportunities to connect and gather. So, so when you host a, a small group, it doesn't just have to be with just the people from Discover Church. As a matter of fact, it's my great hope and dream that, that the majority of people who are attending the small groups that are kind of facilitated through Discover Church are people that don't even have a church home yet. That people that may not even have a relationship with Jesus yet, because people that are here at a part of our church realize the call to be a minister and look for opportunities to gather people together and, and dive into who Jesus is and what he's all about. So, uh, man, if what he talked about last week is of interest to you, I'd encourage you to talk to Pastor Chris. He's going to be, uh, he leads our small groups and next semester we're going to be launching a new semester of small groups. And man, we would love to see more of you hosting groups with the people that are in your life. This week, I'm going to be teaching and preaching what may be the most important message I have preached in a very long time. Um, I believe every once in a while, um, well, every every week that I preach, I feel like God's put a message on my heart for whoever is listening to it. And it's always the people that are right in front of me. And um, if it ministers to anybody else, great. But um, I believe that God has sent me here with a search and destroy mission. A search and destroy mission to, to attack the primary reason why I believe most Christians do not live the life that we have been talking about as a minister. And I believe that, that there's, there's work that the, the devil of hell does to overwhelm us, to distract us, to keep us so confused and so frustrated and so exhausted and so busy that we don't live our life as a minister of Jesus. And as I was preparing this series, um, this is kind of one of those series that as a pastor, I'm like, man, if everybody in our church could, could grab onto this man, it would change their life. It would revolutionize the way that they see and relate to Jesus and not just them, but man, people around them, their lives would start being changed as well. But with everything that's gone on in the last couple of years, I felt the spirit of God saying, hey, listen, this can't be one of those rah, rah, re, kick them in the knee series. I won't finish the rest of that because we're in church. Three of you know the rest of it. Every once in a while, God reminds me that as a pastor, that my call is to be a shepherd and it doesn't do any good to yell at the sheep to limp faster. And so God has sent me here with a search and destroy message to attack the thing that I believe is, the, is what prevents so many of us from living this way. And the reason why so many of us don't live as a minister is because our gas tank is always on empty. 
Anybody else feel that? I came across a quote this week from a, a new book that I'm reading called Subversive Sabbath. And, and this, man, this so appropriately describes, I believe, where we are. It says this, we live in a 24-7 culture. By the way, if anything that I read here resonates or sounds familiar or you agree with it, just give me an amen right off the top. I just want to know if, if anybody else feels this deep in their core like I did when I read it. We live in a 24-7 culture of endless productivity, workaholism, distraction, burnout, and anxiety. A way of life which we've sadly grown accustomed. This tired system of life ultimately destroys our souls, our bodies, our relationships, our society, woo, and the rest of God's creation. The whole world grows exhausted because humanity has forgotten to enter into God's rest. The title of the message today is All Gassed Up. We're going to be using the metaphor. Uh, we're not talking about chili. Uh, we're going to be using the metaphor of, of vehicles and cars and, and, and gasoline to help us out with this because ultimately, I believe it's critical that we understand that the quote that I just read was never the way that God intended life to be lived. I also believe it's critical that we understand that every single one of us have all of the authority to mandate that we do not live that way any longer. It's a choice that we have to make. There's a series of choices that we're gonna have to make and that we're gonna dive in today because what God wants for us is for us to be able to experience and live in a rhythm of life where we can not only experience rest, but that we can experience restoration. Where we can actually be refueled and the gas tank can be filled back up and God has prescribed this to us, he's given this to us in something that is not really talked about a lot Actually, there's kind of a lot of argument about, you know, how and when we're supposed to do this amongst some people and amongst a bunch of other people. It just sounds like an ancient, crazy, foreign thing. But we're going to talk today about Sabbath. I want to describe what Sabbath is. For the sake of our message today, I would describe and define Sabbath as a built-in rhythm of restorative rest into the constant chaos of life. That's what Sabbath is. It's a built-in rhythm of restorative rest into the constant chaos of life. It's an ancient concept that God first established all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 1.31, it says, then God saw everything that he made and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because in it, he rested from his work, which God had created and made. God led by example with this idea of a Sabbath, with the idea of a rest in the creation account. And lest you be confused, he didn't do it because he was tired. He's God. He speaks things into existence and it doesn't require much effort from him. God did it as an example. It would have been a, a radical departure from um, every other ancient religion that their God required constant work, constant production, constant effort, constant striving. But the God of the Bible comes along and says, listen, see, I am not like any of those gods. We're not all the same. I want you to be able to rest. Science has also begin to understand how critical and helpful this is. In 2005, the National Geographic um, uh, magazine published the findings of scientists funded in part by the U.S. National Institute on Aging. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I guess I'm not old enough to know that there's such a thing. Who traveled around the globe to learn the secrets of longevity from populations that had high rates of centenarians. I had to look that word up. It means people who are over 100 not 100, but 100. So they went and researched the populations that hide centenarians, few deadly diseases, and more healthy years of life. And among them were Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. Scientists pointed to Adventist practice of the Sabbath as one of the reasons for their good health. An earlier study found the average Adventist lived four to 10 years longer than the average Californian. Science is beginning to catch up to God. 
and catch up to the Bible, contrary to what a lot of people want to say that science is proving God wrong or the Bible wrong. That's not usually how it works. Science usually just catches up to the Bible. We're going to be in Jeremiah 17. And what I want to do today um, is I want to begin to unpack a little bit about the hows and the whys and the what's of the Sabbath. God established it in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 20, God sees that it's so important that he established it as the fourth commandment. It wasn't given as a commandment to Adam and Eve. It was given as a model and example. And I'm gonna go into reasons why in just a minute, why God established it as a commandment. But in Exodus 20, he establishes that a commandment. And by Exodus 31, he tells them, if y'all don't observe this commandment, it is punishable by death. Woo. Maybe we need to go back to that. That was a joke but I believe it would be helpful maybe. In Jeremiah chapter 17, God tells Jeremiah, hey, Jeremiah, you're one of my prophets. I want you to go and speak to my people. I want you to go into the city and make this declaration. This is what he says in Jeremiah 17, 22. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Basically, let me translate that. All y'all shut up and listen. And then he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burdens on the Sabbath day, nor bring it into the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. See, here's the first principle that I want to teach you today about the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is a day of carrying no burdens. I believe it's important that God worded it this way instead of just saying that it's a day of no work. How many of you know that when you're not at work, you can still carry burdens? Amen. What he's trying to get across is, is that when you're at home on the Sabbath, don't bring any of the burdens of the world into your home from the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, when you leave your home on the Sabbath, don't bring any of your burdens from your home into the world as you go into the Sabbath. He's trying, to con- he's trying to convey this idea that the, the point of a Sabbath is a day where we carry no burdens. I heard someone say this week as I was uh, doing some research on this that perhaps the best way that we can evaluate this is that, uh, that on a Sabbath day when we establish that, that it is a day that we should consume ourselves with only things that are life-giving. And if there are things that are life-sucking, those would be burdens and we're not to carry burdens on the Sabbath. But he continues in Jeremiah and he begins you to talk about what's gonna happen if you observe it and what happens if you don't. He says this in verse um, verse 23, but they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff. They may not hear nor receive instruction. Basically nobody listened, nobody paid attention. Verse 24, and it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of the cities, uh, this, this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever." And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. What is going on here? Essentially what God is saying is, is listen, y'all know I established a promise to David. And I said, David, because of your faithfulness and because you're a man after my own heart, there will never be a time where Israel has a king that doesn't come from your line. Ultimately, what God was pointing to with that promise was Jesus, that Jesus is the eternal king of Israel and is the eternal king of all things and that he would sit. But what God is saying here is that Israel, if you would abide by the Sabbath, if you would implement the Sabbath, if you would hallow the Sabbath, then not only will I fulfill that promise in eternity, but I will fulfill that promise on earth, that there will never be a day where Jerusalem is ransacked, overturned, and you as the Jews are castaways and vagabonds and migrants in the land. And not only that, will I allow there to be an actual physical king in the physical nation of Jerusalem because you'll never be overturned, but the temple will also remain in the temple being the presence of God. God's making a promise. This is what you can expect if you will hallow the Sabbath day. But what happens, Israel, if you do not? He says this in verse 27, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Basically what he's saying, Israel, if you don't do this, the city's going to burn. And you're not going to have a home anymore and the temple's going to be gone and you are going to be castaways instead of the proud nation that you are. 
question then becomes why? God, why is this so important to you? Why is this so critical for you that you establish this for the Jews? Not only by example, but then establish the commandment and then over and over and over again, talk about it throughout the course of the Old Testament. God, why is this so critical? In order for us to understand why it's so critical, we've got to go back and understand when God established it. He establishes the, the, the covenant or he establishes the Sabbath as a command in Exodus 20 and then in, again in verse 31. But then he says in Exodus 31, 17, he explains what the covenant is or what the Sabbath is. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. You see, here's what Israel had to be taught. Israel spent 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians. And all they ever knew how to do was to work and produce. If they did not work, if they did not produce, they were beaten, brutalized, and even killed. There was no rest. There was no respite. Everything that was required by them was expected by them. And everything that they had to produce had to be produced by their own hands. And so when Israel comes out of slavery, God begins to train them once again into the life that he always wanted them to have. He wanted them to understand the significance of rest. He wanted them to understand why it's so important because no longer are you slaves to a taskmaster. You are followers and children of a loving, caring God. And so when he establishes this in Exodus 31, that it's a sign, what he does is he establishes three things. He established is that that Sabbath is ultimately a gift. It's a gift that God has given the children of Israel. It demonstrated his love and his care and his compassion and his concern for his people, something that Egypt or the Israelites had not seen in their lifetimes. The next thing it shows is that Sabbath provides a chance for us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. It's been said that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. What needs to be said more often that a, rich, that a millionaire who never stops working is really just a rich slave. You see, what God wants us to understand is that, that yes, he expects us. He creates the systems and the, the, the processes where things grow. And he expects us to do the work. But he also wants us to see that he wants us to live with a rhythm, with a cadence of life where we can once a week, once every seven days, have the opportunity to actually sit back and enjoy the fruits of our labor. This is something that so many of us don't really understand. We stay busy, busy, busy chasing this and chasing that that oftentimes we don't actually get to enjoy the fruits of our labor or most importantly, we don't actually get to the point of being able to enjoy the people that we say we love the most. What God wants us to understand is that all the things that we create and we cultivate by all of our work and all of our striving and all of our effort is that he actually wants us to be able to enjoy the fruits of it a little bit. He wants us to be able to enjoy what we've spent so much time cultivating. But most importantly, in this section, what I believe that Sabbath is, is Sabbath is a reminder to remember that God is the creator and we are not. You see, we have bought the lie and been lulled to sleep by the lie that, that the way that we get where we want to go, the way that we get to the point of having the life that we want to have is that it's all measured by things that can be evaluated with a dollar sign. But deep down on the inside, we know that that's the case. We know that that's not the case. That God desires for us and that we ultimately desire for ourselves to be able to enjoy more than just material things. But when we buy this lie, what we end up doing is we end up sacrificing our most valuable commodity, our, our most irreplaceable asset, which is our time. And we sell our time to work. We sacrifice our time to obligations. We lay our time down at the altar of everybody else's expectations of us. We don't honor God with our time so that we can actually enjoy our time with the people that we love. What God wants us to understand 
is that we are not the creator. And there are times where if you will practice this, you will begin to understand that it not, it's not gonna make sense that you can actually oftentimes get more done when you do things God's way and that you honor God with what you have. You create time to be able to enjoy and to rest and to be restored and to worship your God. And that God multiplies the rest of the time where you do more with it than what you could have if you would have just kept plowing through it. By the time Jesus comes along, the religious leaders and the Pharisees had developed a, a legalistic adherence to the Sabbath. In fact, they had developed as the Pharisees and, and a lot of church people often do, they read God's word and then they add all the rules on top of God's word. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, by the time he comes along, there were 39 new laws that were to be practiced and followed in observing the Sabbath. Some of those laws included things like um, how you eat and, and where you go and, and what you do. So in Mark chapter two, Jesus is walking with his disciples and as his disciples are leaving the synagogue uh, or as, as the disciples are walking towards the synagogue, they, they pull off a, a piece of grain from the wheat stalk as they're walking and they put it in their mouth and eat it. That breaks one of the laws. The Pharisees go, oh, he can't do that. They get angry, they get upset. They, they start accusing Jesus of, of what's going on and he accuses him of breaking the law. And Jesus responds in Mark chapter two, verse 27 by saying this, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then after he says that, he goes into the temple, he finds a man with a withered hand and he heals the man with a withered hand. And then the Pharisees immediately are filled with contempt and anger and immediately start plotting how they're going to take Jesus out. You see, for them, these religious leaders, they had got caught up in the, the rule of law. They had got caught up in all of the extra things and they have missed the point. They believe that Sabbath was a thing that was required or expected or I better do it this way. And, and yes, there were times in the Old Testament, we read some of them where God established that. But ultimately the point of the Sabbath was not to be a burden to be carried and bore by the people. It was something that God created as a gift for humanity, an opportunity to experience a different type of life than pretty much everybody else in the known world at the time would have experienced. And through this process, I believe that, that Jesus is modeling a few things. First, that Sabbath is a gift, but, but, but also that Sabbath is an opportunity to worship God. You see, the disciples were, were going to the synagogue. You see, for them, the Sabbath, part of the, the normal regular Sabbath ritual is that they would go into the synagogue, they would go into the temple and they would worship their God. When, G, when God told them that they would, they would set apart the Sabbath day, that they would sanctify it, that they would, they would remember it and make it holy. The part of what God wanted them to do is in the midst of the chaos and the busyness of life, find a time where you come and worship me. Traditionally, the Jews would have done that on Saturday. After the Jesus' resurrection, Christians no longer worship collect primarily gathered on Saturday. They gathered on Sunday because Sunday was a day of celebration because the grave was empty. That, by the way, is why we worship and gather primarily on Sundays. But second, what Jesus teaches us is that Sabbath is to be spent with community. Jesus wasn't by himself in isolation, just with his family. Neither were the disciples. The disciples, many of them had their own families. They were with Jesus. They were, they, they, there was times where, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, where they did something just with their immediate family, but it was a time where they would, they would gather together with their close family, their close friends, those life-giving relationships, and they would intentionally spend time with each other. Next Sabbath, is restorative. Listen, I love a good, a good lazy Saturday as much as anybody where you just put the fat pants on and the fat pants just stay on all day. One of those days, what we doing today? I don't know. It's gonna involve me, a couch, and some food that is not good for my heart. Listen, I, I love a lazy Saturday. 
But part of what we're learning here, what Jesus is modeling here is that that Sabbath is not to be something that you just live hold up by yourself alone with your family. That Sabbath is not just a day where you just lay around and sleep all day. And listen, I love those days every once in a while. But if you get to the end of one of those days, here's what I have learned in every single one of those days, that oftentimes I've, I've been able to spend a day that didn't require me to empty any gas from the tank, but I got to the end of the day and I go into the next day and I don't feel like I've got any new gas in the tank. That yes, I may have been able to rest my body, but my mind and my emotions and my spirit and my soul is not any more fueled, any more filled by spending a lazy day just watching movies together as a family. What God wants to do is he wants to help us understand that Sabbath is an opportunity to be restored. In this example in Mark chapter two, what are the disciples doing? They're together, they're eating, and they're participating in activities that are life-giving. I can promise you that Jesus would have known that healing a man with a withered hand would have been life-giving to everybody except the legalistic Pharisees who were so wrapped up in the rule of everything that they missed out on the point of everything. See, all of this teaches some things about Sabbath, but there's some other things that we can learn from Sabbath by looking at some of the ancient Jewish traditions. There were things that the Jews would do. Some of it we can go and and see, book, chapter, verse, and scripture. Some of it is ancient tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. And as we we evaluate this, we're gonna see that there are some rhythms that they have put in place, some things that they've established that, that teach us something that we can learn from about the life that God wants us to have and what this regular restorative rhythm should look like. And I'll just tell you, listen, Jessica and I, I've known for about a month, month and a half that I was gonna be preaching this message and we've spent a lot of time talking about this because this is one of those things that, that is really an upset and an upheaval to the American life. But as we dive into the word of God, as we have kind of unpacked this and she's done some research on it to help me out and I've done some research on it, we've spent some time talking about it. Listen, we're, we're in the process of asking the question, God, what, it, what would it look like if our life looked so counterculturally, radically different than the rest of the world that people would look at our lives and not be impressed by us, but go, man, what are you doing different? Because you seem to have energy and enthusiasm and grace and patience and, and, and excitement that the rest of us don't have. God, how could we model this to our church? How could we model this to our neighborhood? How can we model this to our community? The life that you have always wanted people to have. And so we don't have it all figured out yet, but we're having conversations about there's some things in our life that needs to change based on what we're learning from the word of God. Which by the way, is always the point of reading the word of God, that you would identify the stuff that doesn't look right. And that instead of arguing with God about how it's wrong, you would just get busy looking at how to try to make your life look like his word. So I wanna teach you some of these Jewish traditions and I think there's some things that we can learn from them. We learn from the Jewish traditions that Sabbath is an anticipated time of celebration. The Jews operated under a, a lunar calendar. And so for them, um, the next day started at sunset. Um, and then it went until the sunset of the next day. And so what the Jews would do is they would spend all day, the day before Sabbath, making preparations for the Sabbath meal. And they would get together their best food. They would put on their best clothes. They would, they would set out uh, table settings that were, that were nice. And then the, the Sabbath would begin. They would do all the food prep and all the stuff ahead of time. And then the Sabbath began when they would light a candle. And, and the lighting of the candle basically said it, it was a part of the process to try to indicate to themselves that we're intentionally doing something different. We're gonna light this candle. And as long as the candle is lit, it's the Sabbath. It's a physical manifestation of a reminder of the life that God wants us to live so that every time I look at the candle as it's lit on the Sabbath, I can be reminded of what the purpose of this day is. And then they would go through this process that everybody that was seated at the table would then recite a traditional Hebrew prayer. They would recite it together. And then after they recited the prayer, then the man of the house would stand up and he would, he would um, it, it, it's kind of 
funky if whether or not he sang it or just said it. I don't know, but I'm singing this dude. Mostly because I love the look that my kids give me when I start singing. It's somewhere between torture and comedy. But the man of the house would sing a praise or a blessing over his wife, oftentimes rooted out of some of the verses from Proverbs chapter 31. And after singing the praise of his wife, by the way, it also establishes the, the, the level of priority that you start off talking to God, then you start off talking to your spouse, and then you spend some time talking to your kids. We need to remember that, by the way. And after he sang this prayer, this, this blessing over his wife, then he would turn, he would look at his children, he would sing a, a blessing over the children. Now, this is a verse that I promise you none of you knew until it became a song this last year. But Numbers chapter six was the verse that they would recite. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, this might seem a little odd to us because we don't really, most of us in our homes, especially not in my house, we don't make time to do these kinds of things to write the word of God on the doorposts of our home and, and recite them constantly when we're in the presence of our children as God had commanded the, the patriarchs to do. You see, this would be the equivalent of, of taking, uh, before you eat the meal together, that, that you would recite your family mission statement or your family values. And some of y'all are going like, oh, wait, people do that? Ooh, a family mission statement, that's a good idea. Brings back a conversation Jessica and I have been having for three years. We've been talking about it for three years. We haven't solidified it. I have a feeling that we're probably going to get on that this week. But you take some time and you recite these family values, your family mission statement over your family. Then they would recite Genesis 1.31 to 2 chapter 3 that we, we read earlier about the, the sixth and seventh day of creation. And, and they did this so that they could be reminded why they do the Sabbath. They can be reminded that God modeled. They can be reminded that God's the creator and they're not. And then before the meal, what they would do is they would, they would pray a prayer over the cup and over the bread. The cup represented God's salvation. The cup represented, or uh, the bread represented God's provision. The bread was a, uh, a callback to um, the manna that God provided, the, the nation of Israel as they were walking through the wilderness. And then they would eat their meal. They would enjoy each other's company. They would laugh. They would tell stories. They would talk about places and spaces where they had seen the goodness of God in their life. They didn't just talk news, weather, sports, and that's fine. Talk news, weather, sports. But they would also have intentional conversations that were Godward focused, where they were inviting each other to look back on the week and ask, where have you seen God's goodness, God's grace, God's power, God's favor, God's mercy? Where have you seen that in your life in the last week? Man, can I just tell you, that would change some things with our kids. We change the way our kids, everybody gets upset. We raise our kids in church, send them to discover kids. And, and eventually we're gonna, we're gonna uh, get some student ministry stuff going. But for now, we've got an awesome small group of, of students that are meeting and then we send them off to college. And every Christian family sends their kids off to college. They're almost like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And can I tell you, one of the ways you can set your kids up for success is by talking about the move of God in your life on a regular basis so that your kids can see that your faith is not something that you just do on Sundays, slap on a bumper sticker and listen to when you're listening to Christian radio because that other music is of the devil. I can promise you, you exposing them to Christian movies is not gonna lead them to love Jesus more. It's gonna cause them to hate him more. I just made a bunch of people really mad right there. And then after the meal, then they would pray a prayer of blessing and they would ask God to bless four areas. They would ask God to bless the food that they just eaten. They'd ask God to bless the land that they live in. They would ask God to bless Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the epicenter of the work of God because that's where the temple was, that's where the presence of God was. And then they would ask God for his goodness in their lives. And then after the Sabbath day, they would rest they would wake up the next day and they would spend the next day enjoying each other's company, doing leisurely activities that brought life to them, that filled their cup and filled their tank. 
It wasn't a time where they obligatorily uh, spent time with people that drained and sucked the life out of them. You don't have to do that on Sabbath. You have God's permission. Somebody's gonna be upset when they see everybody else in the family got an invitation. Hey, can we come? Tomorrow you can, not today. You see, all of this ultimately teaches us this last point that what Sabbath is, is Sabbath is rest in action. It's not just laziness. It's not just kicking your feet up. It's intentionally setting aside a block of time in your rhythm of your week so that you can surround yourself with the people that you love, so that you can focus your heart on the God who loves you, so that you can enjoy the things that you're working so hard to cultivate, that you can engage yourself into things that are life-giving and you can separate from your life, your rhythm, the stuff that drains you, the stuff that takes life from you. By the way, a Sabbath day where you left work at work, but you brought it home with your phone and your email is not a Sabbath. Probably one of the most restful and restorative things that we could do is spend a day away from this and let some folks, I'm preaching to me, okay? Spend a day away from this and let folks know I got some business to take care of that is of the utmost importance. I love you, but you can wait. Spending a day away from social media, can I tell you a lot of our anxiety problems and a lot of our insecurity problems is because of what we see nonstop on social media? We weren't meant to have that kind of access to the world and all the world's issues and problems and ugliness. So take a nap, but don't just take a nap. Do things that puts gas back into your body, back into your soul, back into your mind and back into your emotions. And so what is Sabbath? I just wanna run do this. It's a, it's a day of carrying no burdens. Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath is a chance for us to enjoy the fruits of our labors. Sabbath is a reminder that God is the creator and we are not. Sabbath is an opportunity to worship God. It's to be spent with community, not in isolation. Sabbath is not just restful, but it's restorative. Sabbath is an anticipated time of celebration and Sabbath is rest in action. Another quote from the book that I'm reading says this, that Sabbath is a very threatening biblical concept because it completely undermines all of the assumptions of what we have come to believe being an American is all about, which is being productive. And can I tell you with every fiber of my being, one of our greatest issues and the reason why we don't experience the fullness of the joy of the life that Jesus said he came to give us in John chapter 10, verse 10, the abundant life is because we obsess and consume ourselves with the, the, the primary focus of what does it mean for me to be an American instead of recognizing that our primary focus as children of God, if we've been saved and bought by, by Jesus's life and his sacrifice, been made a new creation through the power of the resurrection, that we recognize that the most important, most significant, the greatest priority is for us to understand what does it mean to be a child of God and a citizen of heaven and allow all the American stuff to come second to that. I want to close with this, this idea. We're talking about the metaphor of, of gas and a car and that kind of stuff. You know, at six foot five, 200 pounds, 256 this week. Can I tell you, I hate road trips. Thank you. One other sanctified, holy, spiritual person in this place. I hate road trips for a lot of reasons. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna vent just a second. I hate road trips because when I look at the rest of my family all snug like a little bug in the road, just sleeping, look over at Jessica. Jessica makes it 30 minutes and she gone. And every time I think about that quote from Dumb and Dumber, some people just aren't cut out for life on the road. <laughs> I look back there at my kids and my kids are sleeping. I'm like, man, if I slept like that, like I actually just hurt my neck just a little bit right now doing that. <laughs> I hate road trips for that. I hate road trips because road trips are not enjoyable. Road trips are a competition. With my personality type, like I, it is... 
I am in constant competition with whatever it, my GPS says my arrival time is. You will not tell me what the limitations of my ability is. Ladies, do you ever feel that your man ever does that? Mm-hmm. Listen, I have been known, well, I don't know how, how known it is, but I'm gonna make it known, that when I'm on a road trip by myself, which almost never happens, your boy's not taking the exit ramp to go to the gas station to go wee-wee. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna find a spot on the road with a couple of trees. All I need is one. I'm gonna pull off on the side of the road. I'm gonna put my hazards on. I'm gonna identify which car just passed me because I'm gonna go handle my business. I'm gonna come get back in my car. And I'm gonna catch that dude. We go on road trips. Jessica's like, oh, a road trip. I just love road trips. So fun. Listen, we're almost 15 years into our marriage and every time we load up for a road trip, like it is a fight. The difference is now we just expect it. The fight. We leave the house and I'm like, let's go. She goes, can we stop and get a Coke? Dang it, woman, we're missing our time. I'm the guy that's on a road trip that I will take the gas tank as far down as possible because I'm calculating like a NASCAR driver, is this gonna be two pit stops or three? Because I'm gonna do it in two and I ain't gonna make a third one, I promise you. But can I tell you in the midst of all of that, every single time that I do take the exit ramp and I do pull off and I fill the car up with gas and get up and stretch my legs and go use the bathroom in an actual you know, civilized way. And I don't know what it is about a Coke, a hot dog, and a honey bun, but it is God's prescription (laughs) to help wake me back up. You know, what's a hard pill for me to swallow is the reality that however much time I would have wasted taking the exit ramp so I can refuel properly, doesn't even begin to compare to how much time it would have taken if I would have ran out of gas. Had to go through the rigmarole of trying to, you know, let's be honest. A dude my size, ain't nobody stopping and picking me up. Okay? I'm sending Jessica out there. Hey, babe, you stick your thumb out. Let your hair fly in the wind. Let them see how pretty you are. And then we'll just switch. And going to the gas station and buying the gas can and, you know, putting 2.5 gallons in the gas can and hoping somebody at the gas station, hey, I need a ride back to my car. Ran out again. And nobody's taking that dude back to his car. And you get back to the car, you fill it up. And you got to go and you got to pull off the gas station anyway because you got to fill it back up. Whatever time is lost in the process of taking the exit ramp doesn't compare to what is lost when you break down and it falls apart. Listen, life is frantic and hectic and chaotic. And we spend so much of our lives built around living up to the expectations that we have of ourselves or that our our family has of us, or even worse, people outside of our home have of us about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to spend. You know, you'll see how much of a sickness this is when you talk to people and like, and and what's one of the most primary things that people say when you're catching up with them? You staying busy? Or somebody wants to brag about how busy they are. I got some people in my life, I love them. I'm not going to call them out because they were just wired differently than me. I talked to them about, man, what'd you do? What'd you do? You had a free day yesterday and he started telling me all the stuff he did. It wears me out. I admire it. He's a hard worker, does all the things. He, I'm talking to him right now. He's listening to me. I'm not going to call him out. I love that he's a hard worker. He's just wired differently. He can't, he can't like sit down and watch a football game. It's okay. 
But can I tell you that it goes beyond just wiring. It goes to a cultural expectation of some work that the enemy is doing. Because if the enemy can't defeat you, he will distract you. And what the enemy has done a great job of is cultivating a culture in our country that has tied our identity and our value and our worth to what we create. But from the beginning, God has told you, that's not how I operate. You are not who you are and your value and worth to him is not what it is based on what you create. Your value and your worth to him is defined by what you have done with the truth that the one who created you died for you. So that you could live a different life, not only free from shame and guilt and condemnation and the sin of your past, but free from busy, frantic, chaotic, and hectic rhythms of life. See, as long as we begin to buy into this, as long as you continue to feel this way, you're going to continue to bury yourself and busy yourself with all of the things. And in so doing, you'll, you'll say yes to all of the obligations at work and all the obligations with your family and with all your kids' schedule. And in so doing, you'll block out the life-giving work that God has called you to do as a minister. You get so overwhelmed and consumed and so busy, you'll remove yourself from ministering either within the context of church or within the context of the community. You go, I'm too busy for that. I don't have enough gas in the tank for that. See, here's what Sabbath is. Sabbath is the necessary opportunity to refuel what is used up in the living of life so that you can take the next leg of the journey of being a minister. And my hope for you today is that you would leave here and you would think a little bit less as an American and you would begin to think a little bit more as a person who is loved by an all-powerful creator God. That you would begin to evaluate and assess your life and that you would be willing to consider setting aside a block of time each week where you can take off the burdens of life and the stress of email and the, the constant never-ending scroll of social media and you can enjoy a meal with the people that are closest to you. And you can be fully present with them to hear how is the God of the universe showing up in your life and knowing that when it's time for you to speak that everyone at the table is just as equally concerned to hear about how the God of the universe is working within your own. That in those seasons of life that are exceptionally busy, you would even discipline yourself to observe a Sabbath so that you can be reminded that you aren't the creator but he is. And then all of your effort to try to chop down more trees that you would realize that it's necessary from time to time to stop and sharpen your ax. I believe God is challenging us today to consider living in such a way by establishing this into our rhythm of life that we could demonstrate to our kids that trophies and accolades and ribbons and banners is not what is most important in life. but consistently positioning ourselves to be reminded of who God is so that we can walk closer to him. And as we walk closer to him, we can walk closer with the people in our lives that we care about the most. That's what's most important in life. And can I tell you what would happen if you did this? I believe that you'd find a new, more sustainable rhythm and pace to life. I believe that you would find that you could actually rest and feel rested. I believe that you would see that you can build a network of people that believe in you and support you and encourage you and will show up for you, not only in the crisis moments, but in the regular moments. I believe your blood, your blood pressure would drop I believe your anxiety would wane just a bit. 
I believe that you would have more focus and more energy. I believe that you'd be able to enjoy life and enjoy life with those that you love the most more. I believe that you would find that you would have more grace and more patience for the people who drive you absolutely insane because God would give you the fuel to do it. And perhaps most importantly, you would no longer miss out on the opportunities to participate in the grand design of God's story that he is writing and unfolding in your life and through your life. And what we've been talking about, this idea of being a minister, that you would begin to see how much joy and fulfillment there is when you know that God has used you to impact somebody else's world. So I wanna help you with this. We put a QR code in your notes. We're gonna put the QR code on the screen. You can take your phone out, you can scan that. Here's what I want you to do with this. If in any way you feel the presence of God or the spirit of God speaking into you, if you feel like, wow, the Lord, I needed this, God, I, how to do this. And better yet, if you're hearing this going, there's no way I can do that. What I want you to do is I want you to go today and scan this and look at it. I want you to hear, I'll get out of the way so you can get it. You don't need a picture of me. And I want you to spend some time, if you're single, I want you to spend some time just evaluating, God, what would it look like for me to live that way? What are some changes that I can make? If you're married, if you have a family, my hope and my prayer is that you would have some time where you would spend some time in discussion and conversation today. And that through this week that you would spend some time diving into the resource that I'm sending you. And you would just prayerfully consider, God, how could we do this? And my hope is that at some point in the next couple of weeks that you will attempt something that you will just try it on and see if the things that we've been talking about today don't work out to be true in your life. Because your God loves you. Your pastor loves you. And sometimes we need people who love us to tell us that we are human and we have limits. And we're not talking about self-care. That's not even what this is talking about. We're talking about the opportunity to become reacquainted to the life that God created you to live and that Christ gave his life for you to experience. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816 203 1835. Again, that's the word faith to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.